This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. Folks, I have sheets from Miracle Made and ugh. I love them, especially in the summer or in these transitional seasons where your body is like hot and cold and it's just like confused. Here's the deal with Miracle Made they make sheets, okay? But they use NASA inspired technology with silver infused fabrics to make these sheets temperature regulating so that you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. It's so delightful. Traditional bed sheets can also have way more bacteria. It can, they can have more bacteria than a toilet seat, which is crazy. They can lead to acne and allergies and stuffy noses. It's just super gross. My husband is one of these people that gets acne from traditional bed sheets. Um, but when we discovered Miracle Made, his face just cleared up. It was, it's been so great because they have this technology that prevents 99.7% of bacteria growth and it requires up to three times less laundry. Uh, so like I said, there's a self-cooling property for better quality sleep. There's a self-cleaning property. Uh, there's comfort and quality. I mean, they're so luxurious. It's like nicer than sheets you'd find at a five-star hotel. And it's designed for your skin so that bacteria doesn't get all up in your pores. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should try miracle.com slash fake the nation. Whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order them today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code fake the nation at the checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 30-day money back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get that full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 269. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and as I do every year, we remind everyone that summer is still happening until September 21st, so stop saying it's over, I will not have it. I'm your host, Nagin Farsad, and I don't handle change very well. Okay, I think we just uh, understood, uh, even seasonal change. Today, we're going to talk about how Costa Ricans are killing it in the mortality scale. We'll also talk about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and finally, we'll ask, does TV have a white guy? problem today oh my god this panel oh i love both of these people and i've known them for so many years and i've been admirers of them for so many years we are joined by stand-up comedian whose album seen better days is available wherever you get comedy albums uh and is a must listen it's so fun i've seen her just totally obliterate audiences in the most wonderful way on every new york stage you can also see her handiwork in the nyt vows um handle on instagram and on twitter where she mocks the new york times wedding section and it is so delightful fun and delicious so you should absolutely follow her there. It is the wonderful Selena Kaba. Hey, Selena. Hey, Nagin. I'm excited to be here. Happy remaining summertime. Uh, thank you, because <laughs> it's still summer. Thank you. Um, and also joining us on the show, again, another veteran of the show. He has four albums on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your albums. Not to brag, four of them. That's right. He also has a new special coming out on October 19th called Show Your Work, which I cannot wait to sink my teeth into. And he'll be back, you know, in October to remind us of that album where we can find it. In the meantime, it's Christian Finnegan. Hey, Christian. Hi, Nikine. It is such a pleasure to see you. Oh, so good to see you. And um, we're all in New York, though we are not we are not seated next to each other. That said, HeadGum has reopened its New York studios and I will actually be having folks like you up in my face in your uh, grill, soon enough, so to speak. <laughs> in my grill. And you know what? I'm sure it's going to end up in like a fist fight, you know? Uh, <laughs> classic I mean, yeah. Classic me, right? Yep. Um, all right, let's get into it with topic number one. So, you guys, Costa Ricans live like a shitload of life. <laughs> is that how, is that the proper way of phrasing it? <laughs> we read a piece in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande called Costa Ricans Live Longer Than Us. What's the secret? Um, and just at first blush, like, 
what did you understand their secret to be? Why do they live so long? Uh, well, you want to go ahead, Selena? No, no, Christian, take it away. <laughs> From uh, well, I just, <laughs> by the way, I'm so proud Selena and Christian they're, are they're both public health experts, well, yeah. so they're Good both thing. very comfortable yeah. talking yeah. about oh, this. I, I always like I like the first slot and any and this show to always go to the person who actually understood the article, and then I'll I'll, I'll, I'll just throw in color commentary after the fact. Um, See, yeah, I, I'm so, just proud of myself for actually having read a New Yorker article, like in its completion, which is oh, all right. I skimmed the yeah. last couple of paragraphs, but. Yeah. The photos are solid. The photos are It was very, long. Yeah. It was just, it was, a, it was a long, it was a long piece. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, now that we don't have reading material in the bathroom anymore, my interaction with the New Yorker is much more limited. Uh, I grew up in one of those houses <laughs> with just a stack of 40 New Yorkers sitting by the toilet. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, from what I gather uh, that they have sort of a, um, a more proactive sort of healthcare system where uh, basically, the government sends out little teams into not only big urban areas, but remote villages to sort of proactively uh, preempt health issues by sort of scheduling meetings with people, as opposed to the way we do it, which is to basically just have like, hey, there are doctors and hospitals here when you need them. And mm-hmm. uh, and people always then go to the doctor once they're already sick or they have problems. And so then you're playing patch up instead of uh, kind of nipping things in the bud. Yeah, like the way I plan on doing with all of you in the HeadGum Studios, they get up in people's faces. <laughs> yep. You know what I mean? And then they just keep like files of each of those people. And it's uh, it's really interesting uh, it it's not rocket science or um as uh, the dry cleaner around the corner for me likes to call it it's not rocket scientists um <laughs> it, <laughs> it's not that either yeah it's not either of those things it and i it was stunning right they have like, these mobile health units that go everywhere they just straight up knock on doors yeah. you know what i mean hey yeah. how are you feeling how many children do you have let's see oh what's that mole on your face let's take a look you know what i mean mm-hmm. so yeah. What did you take from this um, exceedingly long article that was nonetheless great? Yeah, well, I'd like to get credit for the fact that I did the reading this time. So credit um, given, pretty impressive. But yeah, really I mean, ex- like as you said, it seems so simple and sort of obvious of just like okay, get small teams of public health officials and send them out throughout the country in you know r- urban areas, rural areas, and I mean. It was so interesting to hear the story of this one guy as he sort of zipped around on his scooter and he's loaded up with a cooler full of COVID vaccines, um, you know, like a tablet for keeping notes. I mean, just really just the the things you need so importantly, but the fact that he was able to show up to people's doors to vaccinate them, you know, I mean, and I know they were talking about myriad things, not just COVID vaccines, but, you know, I thought about a friend of mine who had a devil of a time getting his housebound father vaccinated right outside of D.C. here in the United States. And, you know, meanwhile, Costa Rica, they have people cruising through. And and I mean, yeah, the record keeping was very impressive. I loved Mm -hmm. how... They talked about having sort of a three-tiered system that, you know, tier one, if there's a bedridden elderly person in the home, they get a visit three times a year or so. Then tier two, you know, it's fewer visits. And most people get a single visit a year. But to have a doctor come to your home, especially if you live in a remote area, and and to have these extensive notes about the residents, what the dwelling is like, uh, you know, if they have money for electricity or these types of things, or if they have limitations. So, okay, no electricity, no way to refrigerate things if you need to have a uh, you know, a, a special antibiotic or exactly. something like that. Like, they they you... can't be prescribed that. Right. Yeah, I mean, just the amount of data they collect. And I mean, in the fact that Costa Ricans welcome this into their home, it's just so impressive. And the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this would never fly in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, yeah. which I know sounds terrible, but I just think, you know, to have that trust of to let the government come into your home, take records and notes, you know what I mean? Yeah, it would be demagogued so quickly here as like, oh, the secret police coming to knock at your door. And, exactly. You know, right. right. Health care. We yeah. can't even, you know, we, we won't even like abide census workers. <laughs> exactly. Know, so. Exactly. You know, it's interesting because a couple things that you the average listener may not know about Costa Rica although I think we all do it's really poor compared to the United States right and their average life expectancy now is 81 hours is 79 so they've surpassed us by um, in average life expectancy and they had already um, they were already parallel with us like I, I don't know over a decade ago so you know 
people in uh, public health people in developing countries or in uh, already rich Western countries were taking note, like what is Costa Rica doing? And the interesting thing that I think they were doing, we're really caught up on universal health care as well. Well, we should. Healthcare is a fucking nightmare in this country. P.S. I'm losing mine at the end of the month. How fun. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, um, don't worry. I'm trying to figure it out. But of course, the figuring it out is taking also years off my life, ironically. Um, But the interesting. So we're all like hepped up on trying to have universal health care, which is just like pay for when things go wrong, either tragically wrong or mildly wrong, just like pay that for us so that when we go to a doctor, we're not completely bankrupt. Like that's where we're at in the United States. And in Costa Rica, they're sort of like seven steps ahead of that, which is not only like pay for when things go tragically wrong. They're like get ahead of things before actually anything goes wrong. Right. So that's what these mobile units are doing um, in rural places and in cities. Obviously, there's clinics. There's like tons of clinics in in all of these um, neighborhoods and cities and in in, uh, suburban communities where people go and they have just regular visits. And then they have like a relationship, you know, with Mm -hmm. these people where it's like, no, I'm doing fine. There's a joint, you know, I have a creek in my joint or whatever. And and it becomes just an ongoing years long conversation about health. And one thing that I that I really appreciate about this piece is like they talked about how if you have like they did a study, I think it was in the United States, where like if you have someone in your family who is um, a a public health, uh, like a nurse or a doctor or somehow in the, you know, the medical community, you're like a bunch percentage, I don't really, I wrote it down and now I cannot find it, more likely to like be vaccinated, to be healthy, to have like a longer life, to like take all the medications you're supposed to take, to take like multivitamins or whatever it is, because you have some person in your family who you trust, who's like, oh yeah, like go get that checked out. Well, yeah, because you can oh, get yeah, sort of free, not- like free, uh, like meetings with a general practitioner over Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> you know exactly, what I mean? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so the Costa Rica is basically creating that mm-hmm. by having these people that you have a long-term relationship with that knock on your door and come into your home. Yeah, right? One of the things that I, I thought was really cool is, you know, they were talking about how they were building a development of something like 10,000 homes or, or some, some large scale development. And they're like, Hey, why don't we just take one of these houses and make it a clinic? You know, think of all the sort of cul-de-sac or gated communities and, yeah. and things like mm-hmm. that in America. If just, in the midst of all of those, there was just one. Basically, it's like taking a. It's like the school nurse approach to life. Yeah, every school yes. has a school yes. nurse that's just there, and you know who the nurse is, and you can just go to pick up condoms or, or, or you know, or, or antibiotics or aspirin, just something simple. So you know, every it's such a farce. This whole COVID situation where everybody's like, oh, you know, talk to your doctor. It's like. Most people don't even have a general practitioner. They wouldn't even know how to get or they haven't right, seen a doctor in right. two years. This this sort of Andy Griffith idea that everybody has like, oh, Doc McGinty that we go down to. It's like it's just <laughs> yeah. not it's not the way people live anymore. But it could be if just every time you sort of revitalized a neighborhood, you set aside one just fucking small edifice as sort of a community clinic. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's funny because they described their community clinics, too. And it was mostly a waiting room and then one other room in the back. Like they're not even a big deal. Right. They're yeah. not state of the art facilities. They're just a couple of rooms where they can handle like just some files some basic information about people and then have, you know, a, a, an examination table. You know, it's yeah. like kind of not it's like. I almost think like we want to make it into a bigger deal than it has to be, you know, mm-hmm. in this in this yeah. country. By the way, the study that I was referring to found that people with a medically trained relative were 10 percent more likely to live beyond the age of 80. Right. Just knowing someone in your family made you 10 percent more likely, made you more likely to be vaccinated, less likely to have drug or alcohol addiction and have fewer hospital admissions overall. So that's uh, I mean, th- this is kind of recreating that thing but like on a countrywide scale mm-hmm. um and and it's remarkable deaths from communicable diseases have fallen by 94 percent um in in costa rica they also talked about other stuff in the in this kind of public health realm like having hot meals at school um having hot meals at school meant that kids just 
were had access to more nutrition. So if you're really poor, it also meant that school attendance went up because moms were like, hmm, I'm going to send my kids to school. They're going to get a great meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's another like aspect of this is just like ha- people having access to nutrition. It's so funny you bring up the school nurse thing, Christian, because like I remember as I was reading this, I was thinking about my time in college um, when I had, it. you know, it's like your first blush with adulthood, right? Mm. And you have, if you have any like problem, I would just go to the the doctor on camp, the mm-hmm. you know the Cornell like student health center, and I like I had a sniffle, I had a hangnail, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I would just go, with, and it sort of just made me feel better and like not distracted with my studies that I could just go there and be like that I feel like I'm having a small problem with something what is it yeah you know? I mean, and they would I've, yeah I've kind of been through it this year you know I had open heart surgery in May and uh fuck dude yeah. I didn't know that yeah Jesus. and uh you know but it would have happened a lot quicker and a lot more seamlessly if I could have addressed it early on and gone and seen like just a local, if, if, if I had had sort of a community clinic or someone reaching out to me, but it's like, I didn't even have a, you know, I had changed insurance twice since I'd last had a general practitioner. So I had to find somebody in network and then I had to go to that doctor that then sent me to a cardiologist that then sent me to a specialist, you know, and, and it, you know, one of the, you'll see, obviously my situation's idiosyncratic, but you see things with COVID when COVID hit, they already had this infrastructure in place. They didn't have to change anything. Like mm-hmm. we are already, we already have all these addresses. We already have all of these roving teams. We can just implement through the system we already have, as opposed to us, where we're trying to like start setting up fucking mobile sites in Walmart, you know, or Walgreens parking lots and crap. We have to create this shit from the ground up because we don't have the infrastructure that exists to reach people where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Selena, I mean, you said that this is never, this would never happen in America. I mean, which I think <laughs> is, you, and I know that's such a. Do you feel a, that? Well, I, I think it's such a cynical take, and I hate to be cynical, but I just, you know, when they were talking about, yeah, sort of uh, willingly putting your name on the list and reporting what your ailments are and letting someone come into your home and record whether your, what type of floor your home has and, you know, the, um, just the living conditions. Like, I could just see, Americans being, you know, that's just the obsession with rugged individualism and like, yeah. but, you know, but I think it's, you know, to our own detriment, obviously. I, I mean, I think, yeah, it would have been such a better system if we had, you know, had teams that went out to give out the COVID vaccine as opposed to gathering a ton of people in a high school gymnasium. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and and like, and that worked okay. But well, like in New York City, the 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 you know the large conference, um, you know, convention hall approach was great because mm-hmm. we have such a huge volume of people yeah. that can stand in line and make that happen, right? Yeah. Um, but in other, you know, in other areas, it's not necessarily the best approach. But, but yeah, even just, for the people that had to gather in large places, like in urban centers, they would call individually and set up appointments with them, as opposed to begging people to call in to make their appointments mm-hmm. they'd say like hi Nagin, this is so-and-so from right. costa rica right. and whatever house tuesday <laughs> you yeah. know which yeah. just yeah. that yeah. might have gathered up another five percent of people getting vaccinated you know at oh, least right yeah i mean if the onus is on the citizen to get through this labyrinth a weird website or make a call you know like mm-hmm. you got to make it as simple as you can which i actually thought at the end of the article when they talked about the dental stuff that struck me as like what a great way to meet people where they are. They have, you know, a bus that goes to all these different places and parks outside of schools to give kids cleanings and encourage, you know, brushing of teeth. And it just, it struck me as such a great way to get kids used to this. And especially as they're growing and losing teeth and, you know, growing in their adult teeth, like just, I mean, to really meet people where they are. It just struck me as so, and then similarly with the, you know, having a good hot meal at school, just these ways to incentivize, to, you know, give an incentive for people to get their kids in school and, you know, that there are good things there. But yeah, I feel like in the U.S., all of that is seen as like a government intervention or somehow, or you know what I mean? Or like, yeah. just right. that it's can I, can the I nanny make a, state. Uh, can I make a pitch to conservatives, though, about public health? Um, and, and as we all know, Fake the Nation is maybe the most popular 
show uh, for conservative listeners. So I know that there are a lot out there. They fire up OAN, and then when they're done with one of the one of the you know uh, fantastic slate of programming, they'll fire up an episode of Fake the Nation. So, uh, so for the conservatives listening, I would you know I was talking to someone about the maternity. Um, the maternity leave policy in Lithuania, as one does. <laughs> Standard. And get a couple of glasses of wine into Nagini. Oh, God. Yeah, Nagini will get so wacky. Don't okay. get her that Sauvignon um, Blanc, or else, yeah, we're still talking that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, you know, we're just, we're having a martini talking about Lithuania. And, um, like, so in, in Lithuania, year one, you get full like maternity leave and you get paid fully what you were earning. Year two, you get maternity leave, you get paid 60% of what you were earning. And year three, you can take leave, you won't get paid, but you're guaranteed your job when you return. So they basically have three years of like, don't stress out, you'll still have a job. And the reason they do is because conservatives in Lithuania want ladies to have more babies Mm. you know so they're making it easier for women to have children right it's the conservatives that want the government to spend more money on maternity leave because it's a pro-family policy and i think this too can be a very pro-family conservatives Listen up. Like if kids are doing well, if they're healthy, if the parents don't have to worry about a whole bunch of like small ailments growing into larger ailments, they can be calm and sound and have more babies and be nice little families or whatever the way you want them to, you know? So I feel like there's a a pitch here for conservatives to super get on board because also, I mean, again, it's like, one of these guys, I think he was the president of, of Costa Rica at whatever point, I think in the 90s when this policy was first introduced, or in the 80s, was just like, oh yeah, like putting a doctor in every community, Who's who, who could possibly be against that? And I thought to myself, well, I feel like I know some people in America who would be against that. But, but I think rationally, though, it's very hard to be against that. And I would love to see some like policies put on the table where we would just make it difficult for Republicans to be against it. You well, know what the, I mean? The, the problem, yeah. one of the challenges of living in a multiracial society is that mm-hmm. America doesn't think of other Americans as Americans. Do you, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I think your typical Costa Rican, regardless of economic status, probably looks at fellow Costa Ricans as countrymen. Mm -hmm. Whereas in America, you know, if you ask a typical kind of OAN viewer or whatever, it's like, they don't see you, Nagin Farsad, as part of their group. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? Uh, Not say, I mean, they might not even see, and I'm the whitest person alive, they might not even see me as part of their group just by virtue of the fact that I live in New York City. You know, Um, and so, I mean, that is sort of the additional challenge is that. So here's my pitch to immigrants is name all of your children like Brad Johnson, you know, (laughs) and then on paper, (laughs) we all look like regular white Americans. Everyday Americans. Americans. Every day, I was, I was Ameri- actually, as opposed to irregular. Oh, exactly. Americans not yeah, not yeah. Strange day Americans. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking about this actually over drinks, and yeah, just just the euphemism for white Americans. You know, where it's like hard working, everyday, oh, yeah, 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 middle yeah. class. You know, working class. Like, okay, I think I get what you mean, but <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I agree completely, Christian. And I think it is. I mean, I think that's I'm not saying the, it can't be overcome, but that is the a major stumbling oh, 100%. block. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the unique hardship of the United States more than anywhere else. You know, I yes. mean, other places have some, you know, ethnic diversity within their uh, citizenry, but, but citizen, not like we do. But not like us. Yeah. 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 Uh, there was one, you know, to to quote to to quote. Uh, an entire era, though, we shall overcome. I mean, you know, it's taken a minute, but like eventually the people yeah. will be like, I guess these brown people aren't going anywhere. Well, they're here every day. So <laughs> let's just party with them instead of against them. All right, folks, let me know what you think. Um, check out this piece. It was just really fascinating and I don't know, uplifting. This is something we could do and it just feels like, ah, it feels yeah. like it's within our reach. And they pay a fraction um, of what we pay. And they spend a lot less time on hold with insurance companies crying. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Um, we're going to take a quick break and learn about our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about other things. 
Today's show is sponsored by Paired. And oh my God, me and my husband have had such a great time using Paired. We had this conversation recently because one of the questions that the app gave us was how do you personally express your love for your partner? I had some really ridiculous things that I was sharing with him that he sort of like totally saw as like, oh yeah, that is how you, you show your love for me. Like one of those things is he's like very sensitive to windows being open without the screen being there or like shades not being drawn at night or like just stuff involving windows. And I'm the kind of person that doesn't care about that. So I show my love for him by like doing those things because I know... <laughs> He cares. And he recognized that as like a very weird form of showing your love for someone. And then I was like, I should actually do more exciting and interesting things for him. One of the ways he shows his love for me is by wearing the clothes that I buy him, which he doesn't always want to wear. But he does because he knows that I love like seeing them. P.S. I feel like he looks better when he wears the clothes I buy him. All right, that's just a side note. But point is, we've had these really fun conversations because of paired and it's as you've now guessed a relationship app for couples you and your partner you download the app you pair together and every day paired gives you questions quizzes games it's a way to, to have fun stay connected and deepen your conversations and I think you know when you get to a certain point I mean me and my dude have been together for like 10 years so it's kind of great to have this external entity like giving you these questions and inspiring new forms of conversation that you hadn't thought of in these 10 years. And so I don't know, I highly, highly recommend Paired. It's so fun. Um, whether you're a new couple and you could you could really use some some questions to get the, to deepen things, or you're a couple that's been around the block and you could use these questions to kind of like find new and interesting things you didn't really know about each other. Either way, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner by using Paired. Head to Paired dot com slash fake the nation to get a seven day free trial and 25% off. If you sign up for a subscription, just head to paired.com slash fake the nation to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using paired. A happier relationship starts here. Go to paired.com slash fake the nation. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We are back and we're ready for topic number two. I mean, so I sent this topic to you two and I about just like talking about 9-11. It's been 20 years and 9-11's coming up. I'm a muzz. It felt like I couldn't like ignore it. And at the same time, or it's like both large and distant. And I don't know. It's so strange to talk about it now. Um, what do you, I guess, how do you feel <laughs> 20 years later? I, I think, you know, obviously, and you know, 20 years out, there's going to be a big kind of, uh, we're all going to kind of think about it and that's healthy. But I do think that the exhaustion you're sort of alluding to, Nagin, is kind of present in all of us. It's just like, we don't have the time to sort of wrap ourselves up in wasn't that terrible 20 years ago when there's so much terrible happening in the moment right now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That is just kind of like, I, I don't really feel like getting misty. It's like everybody's trying to kind of keep their chin down and, you know, or uh, stiff upper lip and sort of get through COVID and all its sort of uh, tertiary tragedies right now. That it's like, I don't really feel like getting sort of, what what is the negative version of nostalgia? I, I don't really feel like wallowing in 9-11 nostalgia. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Selena? Uh, yeah, it's so, I mean, yeah, exactly. I think it's so healthy and important to grieve and to mark these markers. You know, I think it's, you know, not to, I mean, yeah, like the whole never forget. I totally get that. And I do, and I think, you know, especially for people who lost loved ones, you want to, 
you know, have a day that is for you know, remembrance and take, you know, thinking about things. Um, but yeah, it also feels so, gosh, just fraught and big and sticky. And, um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I find, I find it interesting to read and watch, you know, documentary stuff about it or accounts from people who were adults around that time. There's one thing that I find bizarrely, like, the wholly uncompelling, which is, I feel like often you hear people being like, what about these children? This person was five on 9-11, and let's hear what their thoughts were about it. And like, (laughs) I'm sorry, but I can't tell you how much I do not care. Like, unless... Unless you had like any, and I like, I, I don't mean to be harsh to these kiddos, but like, I, I just feel like I'm so, I find it fascinating to I mean, hear. they're adults now. Yes, so. Yeah. I know, I mean, they're not trapped in time, but, um, but I don't know. I just, I, I find it interesting to, you know, just the other night I was watching a documentary about it and I gasped out loud. Cause I was like, Oh my, like I'd forgotten that, you know, the falling, the people falling, like just certain things that you sort of forget about how just how it all unfolded that day. And, and yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know why I felt like for a hot minute, there was a, yeah, a tendency to ask young children what they thought. And I was like, please stop. Like, no, um, I heard probably like three random interviews, clips of random uh, different things where they asked a child what they, who was a child then what they thought yeah, as which, a child. Who and cares? I was like, that's just, I mean, yeah, it's no more, I mean, it's tragic, but it's not any more or less interesting than interviewing anyone whose parent died at a young age. <laughs> you, you, you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, and, and I don't even mean, I don't even mean like people who lost their parents. They lost someone. It's uh, just yeah. literally I just someone, mean, yeah, who someone who's like, Hey, yeah, were you five on nine 11? Wasn't it a weird date school? Like, I, I don't know. I just, <laughs> right, I don't, right. yeah, I don't find that remotely compelling. <laughs> oh, I see. But, oh, just me. Not even people who's were connected. Yeah. To yeah, yeah. No, yeah, not yeah. people who were directly affected. Oh yeah. Cause I've heard it's so weird. I, have it is it is a trend in this current coverage i heard it randomly like several times myself and i thought it was um interesting it's just very bizarre it is but- you know it's probably the only time i can think of and obviously covid has changed everyone's lives but it's been kind of a slow rolling change whereas right it's probably the only time i can think of at least that kind of happened on mass where just one day things were one way and the next day things were a different way yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, and, and yeah, you knew yeah. that it was going to be different yeah, um, that was fascinating when they talked about, you know, the changes with just how previous to this, uh, you know, sort of airport experience was pretty easy breezy. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of like, is this your bag? Is this you like aligning yeah. that, you know, if you see something, say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like, you know, I, I think I, re- I remember at the time kind of like the early days of flying was, um, you know, I've always I had to go home for Christmas and stuff like that. I've always like flown a lot because I lived in New York City and but I'm from the other side of the country. And I remember just being like, wow, this is crazy. Like this security line's going to take forever. I hope this doesn't last long, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but like, do you feel like we just live in that state of of constant? Do you, like, do you think we're overall just a more suspicious people? Yeah, I mean, I feel like yeah. that's. I mean, I, I bet, I bet, if you were to take a time machine back to September tenth, two thousand one, you wouldn't have walked around being like, "Wow, everything's so carefree." Like, I'm sure nobody felt like, "Wow, things are wonderful right now." I hope the t- twin towers don't fall tomorrow. You, you know, I mean, no, nobody ever thinks like I'm living in an easy time. Everybody always thinks right, that right, life of is course. hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's undeniable that. There's just a uh, a framework of sort of suspicion and fear mm-hmm. that kind of was put in place that day, <laughs> you know, that we're oh, still yeah. living under some version of now. And I think that also then lends itself to, you know, I think when people look at sort of the response of the George W. Bush administration and the sort of cowboy stuff, like, I sometimes will speak with younger people and they are like sort of bewildered by how we got there and, you know, like how that all was adopted as kind of this for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, they wanted uh, they were so angry. They wanted someone to blame. They wanted an easy solution. And, 
you know, I think that was sort of permeating the culture at the time. And so I could see how younger people now are like, what the heck? Why, you know, why did we do even the things we did? And it's like, I don't know, in context, it's what was kind of sold as Americanism. And and it felt it felt even, you know, I remember the night after 9-11 or, you know, the night of of September 11th, a bunch of friends and I just ended up at a bar because we just didn't know what the fuck to do. And a friend of mine who, you know, has written for some of America's most cherished liberal television institutions was like, oh yeah, uh, the West and Islam, like this was always, this, this war was always going to happen. Like it's going to be one or the other, like just because everyone was so fucked up in the head that we were just, we weren't ourselves. We weren't thinking of ourselves. And then there were people like the Halliburton's and the Dick Cheney's, you know, the, the, there were people ready to exploit that and to use that to their own ends. Mm -hmm. And even if you, even once the, the, the sort of drunkenness of war rage or, or, you know, sadness wore off, you still didn't feel like you had the right to speak up and be like, Hey, maybe we're acting stupid here. Like at the, at the very least, you kind of just shut up and let the, the war hawks do their thing. Yeah. I mean, I also think the thing that maybe like is hard to imagine is if like if we had the level of like social media that we did now that we did then what you would see on your feed over and over and over again would be those towers falling right it would be an insane because the visual is insane Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and that visual is what we saw i want i mean it's not like we just saw it for a week it's we saw that over and over again for like two years. I mean, they would just be like, it would just be a part of news stories. It would just be like casually thrown into everything that we saw that was talking about politics. It was like, it was so ubiquitous. And so then every time you saw it, I think you got a little hit of like, oh fuck, that's crazy. And yeah, I guess we do have to go to war or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Yeah. So it is like mm-hmm. we like you're saying, Christian, we were out of our minds and also we were fed the imagery constantly to remind us to be out of our minds. Oh yeah. You know? And and it was before you could have this notion of like, yo, trigger warning, this may be really upsetting visuals to even look at. Like, you know, I think that's something I've only learned in the past few years of like, you know, a friend of mine who was, uh, you know, live, going to school right down there at the time, you know, and he was like, when people carelessly circulate these images, it's so upsetting. But but yeah, you're right. I think in many ways it's uh, not by accident, you know, like, and especially right after it happened. Yeah, it just yeah, it was a very, a very different time. And and yeah, it it, it makes you angry and scared and fearful. And, you know, some people are sharing it for that reason. Right. I, I actually, I don't know. It's weird. I just think it would have been actually way worse if we had had all the social media, oh, you know, time. because it would have ju- it would have been all of the networks sharing it constantly. And then every human being in America and the world sharing it constantly it well, would have just been and you will have seen a like, nightmare you would have seen bad actors drilling down oh, yeah. on the most innocuous pieces of mm-hmm. of random footage to kind of explain the, the you know. 9-11 truthers yeah i mean it would have been stuff. that on hyperdrive you yeah. know oh, completely um i i just want to talk about muslims for a quick sec um so ugh, this is dumb but i was in this newsweek article on the um, cover on yeah, the, on the, so I'm cool. On the cover. It's fine. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, of like a you know of a bunch. It's me and like ten other Muslims, and um, and the 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 article is called like the rising. What is it called? It's called uh, the rising power of American Muslims. Uh, it's actually actually a really great piece. Um, I'm just embarrassed that I'm talking about it because I'm also in it. But anyways, Stephen Fries wrote, is the writer uh, in interviewed all of us and 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 put together this kind of really interesting portrait of like. American Muslims, like where we are now versus where we are then and all of the the, the changes that we've experienced. Um, and, you know, any any paints a picture of Muslims having more, you know, cultural and political leverage today uh, than they ever have. Um, and I just wonder as two non-Muslims, do you see that? Do you feel it? Do you notice that? Like what uh, what do you th- you know, I know. You're not Muslim. It's okay. So whatever you say, it's safe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, thanks. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I tend to think so for sure. I mean, I remember I, I'd never seen a hijab until I studied abroad in London my junior year in, um, in college. Actually, no, maybe one girl in my high school wore one, but, but yeah, I mean, I hadn't sort of seen them around as much. And now, yeah. you know, like it's, uh, I, I think it's just neat to see them, you know, their whole like, representation matters. And I think it's really powerful to see that headpiece, you know, I mean, just to see that, you know, on the floor of the, of Congress. Um, also, I thought it was interesting in this article, they talked about just sort of some of the buzzwords of like Sharia law and, uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I had no idea how, what a misrepresentation that, how that's been sort of co-opted by, no, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. gosh, but sorry, that's sort of neither, you know, I mean, that's a little bit off topic, but yeah, but there was, it felt like these random little things from Islam were just cherry picked mm-hmm. and used in media um, by conservatives, mm-hmm. you know, as a, to create a wedge issue where we didn't even really have to create one. Exactly. And, well, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I feel like it was inevitable that it was going to be a wedge issue after September 11th. Sure. I mean, the, the sure. wedge was created by September 11th, certainly exploited by conservatives. But right. I mean, that I think that would, there would have been some some discussion <laughs> regardless. But um, I think one of the weird positive, if there's any positive that came out of September 11th, is that I think that among the sort of creative arts community, there was kind of an instinctual backlash to the backlash uh, against Muslims in the culture is that you started seeing a much more... Uh, I, I feel like for the first time I started seeing like Muslim comedians be able to, you yeah. know, uh, you could say Aziz Ansari, you know, uh, Asif Manvi. You started there started to be certain that kind of what the article talks about, uh, just a visibility in popular mm-hmm. culture that hadn't existed before other than like Omar Sharif, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Who I, I don't think <laughs> right. really kind of was made a big deal about being a Muslim. You, you know what I mean? And, and so strangely, because I think, you know, artistic people tend to be more sensitive to uh, beleaguered communities and, and people who are under the gun, that there was sort of an idea of like, Hey, we see all of this sort of xenophobia going on. It made sort of Hollywood want to maybe be a bit of a counterweight to that. And so there's probably, uh, I think, kids growing up now, I mean, obviously the Muslim community has grown in the last 20 years as well, but I think that there is a a visibility of Muslims on television and in movies that didn't exist, ironically, prior to 9-11. Yeah, I mean, so just to give some numbers to what you're feeling, there was in in 2001 about a million Muslims in the United States, and recently that number is about 3.5 million. And they used to, so it's interesting because they used to kind of be more reliably Republican uh, because the this kind of socially conservative policies jived with them, whatever, anti-gay rights stuff also jived with them. Um, and so they won, you know, G- George W. Bush won 72% of the Muslim vote in 2000, but after 9-11, right, that completely changed. And then I think the other interesting thing is, like, you know, when I was interviewed for this article, I don't know what it was like to be a comedian before 9-11. I was too young. But I, um, mm, I, 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 was, <laughs> I was too young, young with my supple skin. Just like, yeah. I mean, I was a comedian, I'm, but I was in third grade, so. I'm sorry, can you under, can you guys understand me through my collagen that I have so much of? Um, but like, I, but like, I, you know, I think one thing that seemed clear to me was that like, com- like all of these comedians and stuff like that, like like they existed before 9-11, but they tried very hard to blend in and not make a big deal of it so they could get jobs. And so I was like, you know, Muslims walked amongst us before <laughs> 9-11. And some, you know, I'm I'm sort of like, like, quote unquote, lucky in that I was, um, ra- you know, raised in in the 80s where people really hated Iranians. And so I feel like I my earliest memory is and I mentioned this on the show before my earliest memory is like you know my brother getting beat up because he was Iranian in high school he's 13 years older than me so I was a little and um so I think 
you know, uh, the uh, the Iran America like kind of silent battle was like a weird thing in American culture. Um, but f- I think for every other Muslim, they were just sort of like, let's just silently make them some hummus and get on with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, let's not draw attention. And I think the thing that sort of also really changed um, because of 9-11 is a pan Muslim identity. So I think, uh, you know, suddenly like there were more of these kind of pan Middle Eastern um organizations that kind of try to bring Muslim voices together, Middle Eastern voices together. Also this realization that Christian people, you know, Middle Middle Eastern Christians and Middle Eastern Muslims have a lot in common, not something that they recognize when they're in their mother countries. You know what Mm. I mean? And the thing they have in common is that they're both demonized. It didn't matter that the Christian ones were Christian, you know? So I, I think some, a thing that we sort of recognized is, um, that didn't happen with Omar Sharif is that we joined forces and there was more coalition building that made it possible to create pipelines for us to be in Hollywood and in Congress and, you know, and in uh, your, uh, I don't know, accountant's office. Um, so, okay, well, I don't know. Just wanted to say something about Muslims. I feel like we <laughs> solved 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> We did it. Um, all right, folks, let me know. What do you think? Uh, how how do how is thing how have things changed? I don't know. I'm so uh, it's a it's an interesting um, it's it's just an interesting milestone. Twenty years and how distant it feels and how close it feels yeah. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Very odd. All right, let us move on to topic number three. So we read a piece in New York Magazine called "TV's White Guys Are in Crisis" by Catherine Vad- Van Randonk. No, Van Van Arendonk, maybe Van Arendonk. Um, I'll just say it more confidently, and then I'll sell it. <laughs> just sell um, it. Yeah. <laughs> the thrust of the piece is a fantastic piece, and. Um, the thrust of the piece is basically, I'll just quote from it, that white guys who used to be default protagonists on TV and in American life, um, all of the beleaguered dads, bad bosses, authoritative leaders, and wildcard mavericks are no longer the main characters. So what happens to that guy now? Should he be erased? Can he be rehabilitated? His entitlement washed away? Where is he supposed to go? So I guess... Um, my question for you both is where is he supposed to go or where in please specifically where am i particularly supposed to go christian what are you even doing with yourself (laughs) right now christian's like what subway line and where do i go (laughs) where do we go now in the words of guns and roses um, so I don't know how did how did do you think there's a crisis of white guys in TV and what to do with them? Selena, we'll start with you. Well, I loved this article. Also, if anyone wants to check out the comments below it, people are up in arms about this article. And I thought it was a great article because it's just a fascinating analysis of, mm-hmm. you know, this archetype. And, I, you know, and I think I was noodling on it. And I feel like often if a show has an entirely cast of all people of color or women, it's sort of ghettoized. Um, and I feel like sometimes a white male protagonist will be used to make something kind of mainstream. And I hope that doesn't sound terrible, but I just think that, I think that kind of if you want to function in the mainstream world, often you kind of have this this cast member. Um, and perhaps it's to balance it out. Like I thought that in White Lotus, um, Steve Zahn's character was a fantastic, you know, sort of white guy grappling with his privilege, not knowing quite what to do with it. And, you know, um, and ask and and saying the wrong things, but also saying the right thing, mm-hmm. like being sensitive about race, but being completely insensitive at the same time. Yes. It's like, right, right. Totally. But I thought, you know, if that character didn't exist on this show, I wonder if uh, I don't know if the show I mean, and also it was showcasing a, you know, heteronormative marriage. But like, I felt like there was something that felt like, oh, this is how you mainstream the show and don't make it all about characters that we're used to seeing as tertiary characters, maybe. If that makes sense. Christian. Well, I mean, you know, I have a lot of feelings about this topic, like to the extent that I have a hard <laughs> time even discussing it. But um, wait, be- OK. And I just want to say before I get any tweets about how there are no black people on the panel today. I just want to remind people that the panels are scheduled in advance and that articles happen when they're written. And I don't, I can't, but also that I don't like 
bringing black people on to only talk about things that are like for black people or brown. Like, right. I don't want Mexicans to come in and be like, hey, what do you think about the uh, abortion ruling in Mexico? Like, mm-hmm. w- we're all allowed to talk about everything. And so that's like one of the things of the show. Um, so now, Christian, but I am so curious because you are a white guy. So I do want to know what you well, what you think. You know, a lot of like, this and is you're just a creator. It had to be it has to be done. I mean, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. And if that means that some a bunch of white dudes feelings get hurt, then tough shit, really. But as one of those white guys, I will say my feelings do get hurt sometimes. At the end of the day, I know <laughs> yeah. that my feelings are not the be all end all who gives a fuck about my feelings. But I'm not going to lie and say that it doesn't it doesn't hurt every once in a while. Like if I, you know, and again, I'm I, this is going to sound like I'm whining out of context. This is the way it has to be. This is the this is us resetting the bone, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, if a bone is it heals wrong, you have to fucking re-break it and set it properly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't have a problem with this in the macro, but on the micro, it's like, I know that if it like a granted, this is not on camera, but off camera, it's like if a TV show is looking for one new writer, I don't even bother to to apply anymore because they probably have as many white guys as they need on the staff. They right, don't need right, one, right. especially not one who's in his late 40s. And so it's like I do agree that these you know writers rooms or casts that they need to be diversified but the odd man out i end up being the kind of person who's a little bit the odd man out and i am of a group that is not used to being the odd man out and so there is kind of like a, a debathification feeling to it like i don't know if, if you remember after said i don't know why i'm bringing this to, to iraq but after saddam was toppled uh, all of the the Bathist party, which was Saddam's. <laughs> this is really no, weird. Trust me, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Okay, yes. Yeah, I can't wait for there. you to stick the landing. I cannot wait. Where is this going to go? Oh my god! Where is this I am going? fucking Simone Biles in this shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't get the spinnies or whatever she got. Anyway, I'm gonna, not going to extend this metaphor any longer. No, but uh, when when the Bath party was toppled, uh, the the Rumsfeld and the U.S. had a policy of like not letting any of those people be involved in the government moving forward. And what happened to those guys? They all fucking became uh, ISIS. ISIS. (laughs) Do you you know what I mean? Because it's like you, you had a bunch of angry dudes who had been in power who were then cut out of power and to me that's what i look at things like the proud boys mm-hmm. and uh a right. lot of the male comedian Men's podcast community <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know what wow, i mean that's a way of not naming names yes but they they, they do feel whether you want to say it's legitimate or not they do feel cut out of the popular culture marginalized mm-hmm. you know right. a lot of the sort of white male club comics who used to kind of be the default on kimmel and uh colbert white guys uh but they used to be the sort of default comedians on these shows now sure. they don't feel like they are anymore whether they're right or they're wrong that's how they feel and mm-hmm. so that they create this little fucking toxic world of yeah. grievance that they all just you know jerk each other off all day yeah. um but so so to me it's like i i have those feelings because i am a white guy and i do feel a bit of the brunt of it but tough shit at the end of the day this is what has to get done i think that's, i mean yeah. can i just say I don't. Okay, so the so the issue is the 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 writer points out um, in this in really interesting piece is that you know for example there's sti- it's like they are more marginal characters right Steve Zahn is not the centerpiece of this sh- of the show White Lotus um, but everything about the show sort of revolves around um, the universe the the patriarchy that he is still a part of and our reaction to it right and the privilege that he still enjoys and then all of the marginal people's reaction to it right so it's sort of like the show he is a he's a supporting character but he's still like the centerpiece somehow mm-hmm. um, so that's something that's like I think frustrating when you're like, it does it whatever the version of like the Bechdel test is for society, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it's it the shows are failing it because everything is still sort of like in relation to a white to an our understanding of a symbolic white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's annoying. But at the same time, we are in a transition phase. So everything does feel like it's still about our relationship to the like white male patriarchy. Well, and, and I can I just for one second just yeah. defend uh, white dudes just in the culture in general, not defend them or at least try to explain them slightly. Yeah, that 
you know, we have this idea that like, you know, TV should look like America and there should be different kinds of people of different backgrounds, gender, race, economic status, whatever. That's not the way most people in this country live. It's the way we live in urban areas where we do have friends of different, yeah. you know, cultures, yeah. mm-hmm. but drive two hours out of New York in any direction. It's pretty homogenous. And so yeah. when they look at this shit on TV, when they see some multiracial cast, this office comedy where there's like Shit's Creek to me was the, the most hilarious example of this which is a show I enjoyed but was so absurd that it's like the whole premise of the show is that they're going to this rural back ass small town and yet this rural back ass small town has lesbians and black people <laughs> and the right, Easterners right, 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 you know right. that doesn't look like America to a lot of parts of America and so I understand why they look at these shows and they talk and, and they're like that doesn't that doesn't represent I don't there's nobody there's no black lesbians at the bar I hang out in <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm so the thing that I sometimes feel like Hollywood does um, is that they we twist ourselves into a pretzel to have diversity, so that like it just looks like diversity, mm-hmm. and but maybe not ne- even necessarily behind the scenes. Like off camera, we might not have as much diversity. It's sort of we've made it more important to show diversity rather than be diverse and on the creation side, and I think. Because a lot of these shows that were mentioned, you know, White Lotus is made. Mike is a Mike White show, right? So we're not necessarily winning behind the scenes, um, but we're trying to portray that, like, we understand something about diversity. Uh, And I think the other thing is, like, we just talked about the numbers of Muslims in the United States. If there's only 3.5 million Muslims, like that's a very, 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 very small percentage of the population compared to, you know, 300 million, whatever our total population is, right? So if we're just doing things based on quotas, which like we're not, but like if we are, then we would really never have Muslims on TV anyways. <laughs> we're just too, we just are not numerous enough, right? Like I am, I'm totally, totally willing to accept that um, there are, just aren't as many, uh, I don't know, Native Americans as there are white people. There just aren't, right? There just aren't. And so we're, it's like, I'm fine to see Paul Rudd in a, the lead of a thing. Like, he's great. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I, it's like, I'm not angry that there are <laughs> white people on television. And I'm not in the camp that we should that they, they should be erased. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of white, you know, some of my best friends are white people. <laughs> yeah. Guys, they're yes. white guys, you know? And I just, I think this is an interesting transitional phase. And I'm so interested to see when, how it'll shake out when things are just sort of normal. If we go by the numbers, honestly, we should see so many more Mexicans, right? Mexican-Americans than we ever see. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we're not going by the numbers. We're go- I don't know what we're going by exactly. Mm-hmm. Are we going by feeling? Are we going like, I don't know. You know what I mean? And if, and if, you're, and, if you're used to making 80 cents of every dollar, like this is a weird metaphor, but it's like if, if you're used to making 80 cents of every dollar and then somebody comes along and says, by the way, from now on you're only going to making 70%, 70 cents on every dollar, that feels like someone's stealing from you. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though it's completely unfair and biased in your right. favor, it feels right. like something is being taken from you. But yeah, right. and I, Christian, to go back to what you were saying before, which I thought was so fascinating, and and it's been interesting to watch like my white dude friends in comedy, so you know, like navigate this, and exactly like on the macro level that you get it, but on the micro level, it's like, oh well, you know, this person who I want, you know. To, to have a job. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, but I think it is fascinating to watch how people process it. When you're used to being the default, getting the gig, the writer's room, oh, it's eight, me and eight of my dude friends. Like, yep. you know, I think it's, I mean, cause I remember like, you know, chatting with dude standups years and years ago, but like, you know, I remember one time this guy who had a lot of buzz about him, white straight guy. And he was like, just absolutely stunned that he emailed a booker and the booker just didn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey, I was like, try being, I was like, try being anyone other than a white guy. Than you, you know? right, like, right, right, right. Like, a booker well, didn't respond. I, the injustice, you know. The 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 feeling that I got that I, that I still get. I mean, and this is like in not too long ago, I was called back for something to be the host of something, and the callback included this white stand-up guy, um, and he turned to me and he said, oh. I saw your name on the original audition list and I knew you would get called back because they always call back the brown people. Oh my God. He said that to my 
face. Oh my god. Okay, and you know I I'm gonna just... need to know who that is when we when <laughs> I mean I know, right? I know. When we're uh, off, quick I'll zoom look. after this but, zoom. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the crazy thing is just that like it's interesting because I was like, is it was it that you I I just didn't get that job, you know, and it's still extremely competitive for any brown person to get any job. So, like, don't worry. It's still really, 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 <laughs> really hard, you yeah. know, like so. So to this white guy, I'm like, is it just that you used to waltz into the job and now you actually are? It's like it's also competitive for you. Like, I what is the why do you I think the, the other thing is just like having an, a completely um, you know, wrong perception of how easy it is for the rest exactly. of us. It's still very, 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 very difficult. And so I think that's a, a something in the marketing of how race relations should go, yeah. that we should communicate to our white guy brethren, like, don't worry, it's still really hard for us. Yeah. And it's when also we... now just a little hard for you too. Exactly. And that's okay. Yeah. yeah. And that you're when still we get getting the, job... the lion's share of the money and opportunities. You're still getting, <laughs> exactly. yeah, like, and... and you're still getting the job. Yeah. And like, you're still, you know, and there's still little ways where like, you know, where I feel like, you know, if I'm if I'm hired to do something, they want to have a, a like a do a white guy behind me. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Sort of like a guarantor that I'm not going to suck <laughs> um, if I'm directing or writing something right. Like I, th- that those types of things are still happening. Like, um, I don't know. And I feel like. I, I don't I don't know what numbers they're looking at or what who they're talking to to feel like angry. It's all I think a lot of it again it's it's anecdotal and it's mm-hmm. like you start to see, you know, it's it's cuz like I said I feel it in my day-to-day life and luckily I I I tend to be pretty good at looking macro and not just be completely up in my own navel all the time and I understand why it's happening, but I think for a lot of people it it's felt in a very immediate sense. It's it's mm-hmm. felt like Again, in our industry, I, I don't know about other industries, but again, everything that everything feels like a loss when it's different than what you're used to. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, uh, just giving the final word to a white guy there. Yep. <laughs> um, I'm glad you're able to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me know what you think. What shows are you watching? Do you feel like we have a white guy problem in those shows? Um, I'm I'm of two minds. Again, like I'm like I don't I don't know what rules we're operating under, and I don't know if there should be rules. And I understand everyone's feelings, and I even understand what it must feel like to be a white guy who feels like they can't have narratives that are like based on them anymore. Um, that said, one of my favorite shows of the last year is Dave about the rapper. Dave and he's a white guy okay so just a random plug for a show (laughs) helped by a white guy all right oh my god Christian Selena that is the end of the show thank you so much uh for joining me on this wild journey uh I would love for the people of Fake the Nation to know where to follow you so that they can enjoy you and your original works as much as I have over the years Selena, where do they do that? Yes, um, I have just my regular old website, which is selenacopic.com, and I'm on Twitter. And then um, my fun parody, N-Y-T-V-O-W-S, is on Twitter and Insta, and I'm pretty active on that with some, you know, silly satire. Uh, oh, it's so fun. It's really fun. It's especially so funny. When it's, it's wedding, so ridiculous. When it's wedding season, there's so much fodder. Oh, my gosh. Um, and uh, on my album, Seen Better Days, I'm really proud of it. It's super duper fun, uh, and it's on iTunes and Spotify and all those fun places. Both of these things are excellent, and you must immediately subscribe, uh, follow, download. Christian Finnegan. Yes, my dear. Where do they find you? Uh, you can find me at the Bed Bath and Beyond on Sixth Avenue and Sixteenth uh, Street. I hear they just got renovations. Yeah, so no, I just I don't even work there. Location. I'm just gonna be hanging out there. Yeah, um, it's the only place white guys are allowed to yeah, hang anymore. Finally, someone says it. You think it, I say it. Uh, <laughs> I am on ye old Twitter machine at Christ Finnegan. Uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this because I've resisted for this long, but I actually just yesterday hired a social media person who's going to help me do something on Instagram to... Yay! I've resisted the lore of Facebook and Instagram for all this time, but I, I guess I have a new special coming out, so I guess I have to be proactive about 
pimping it. Uh, so eventually you'll be able to find me there. But uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find me uh, for the time being. And um, we're going to have uh, both of you back on in the future. And especially, Christian, uh, you can remind us about your album that comes out on October 19th. I'm so excited for it. Uh, all right. And, folks, um, I want to remind you guys to, like, rate and review the show because it really helps people find the show. Um, recently, Girl Hatton wrote, uh, Five stars, the thirsty in my Thursdays. Insightful and clever without the reminder. Enchant your earballs, but also your eyeballs if you get a chance to see her mouth hole. <laughs> Um, if you get a chance to see her, um, I, I did. Uh, apparently, this uh, listener saw me perform at Caveat, which is really delightful. Thank you for that wonderful review. We also got from Logan Mason, five stars. Why bother listen to totally dull people when you can laugh along with Nagin? She's an absolute delight with her guests, and her guests are the best. I love it when you're on Wait Wait, who's <laughs> on Wait Wait, and so glad that you have your own podcast. Thank you. That's really nice. I'm just so uh, touched by that. So keep the reviews coming. It really, really helps people find the show. Oh, and for bonus content for Fake the Nation, please feel free to join my Patreon. It is patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad. This week's bonus episode is with Maz Jobani and Jeffrey Maurer, and it's about emotional contagion. What is it? Are you experiencing it? Uh, how long does it last? Uh, we really get into emotional contagion on this episode. It's so fantastic. Um, so you can support the show at any level um, from one to four to five dollars a month it's uh, very um, cost effective for the stuff you get even if I do say so myself so that's patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad but what I'd really like to do is thank all of the wonderful people that make this show happen that's our producer Julia Linden our sound engineer Stephanie Aguilar all of the wonderful people at HeadGum our music was written by Gabi Alter uh, and if you have any um, ideas uh, for segments or guests or anything at all please reach out to us at fake the nation at headgum.com you can join the patreon for bonus content um you know this week pa- this week's patreon uh, is with uh, maz jobrani and jeffrey maurer and uh and it is a hilarious conversation about god what was our hilarious conversation about i don't remember so i'm gonna have to re-record this part later um so thank you that is the that is it for us and we will be back in your earballs next week That was a HeadGum Podcast.